Okay, uh, good evening, everybody. Thanks so much for coming out on another rainy Sunday night. Shani said it rains every time. We're two for two on rain on these things. Um, I mentioned at our initial session um, last, whatever it was in November, uh, that individuals across the globe, as we know, have been experiencing an explosion of mental health needs over the last number of years. And that it's true in particular for children and for teenagers. And I think it's fair to say that anybody who is, a, who is parenting a teenager today uh, feels that the world in which our teenagers are growing up is a totally different world than the world in which we grew up as teenagers. Uh, the challenges that we faced as teens have been magnified exponentially for teens today, and that makes our job as parents that much more difficult and challenging. Um, and this is just but one of the many reasons why I continue to be so proud that we launched B'chon Avshecha in November and now continue uh, this Wild Teen Mental Health Initiative tonight. Uh, we continue to express our cards to our anonymous Wild family who has underwritten the program. Without their vision, encouragement, and financial support, we would not be able to have launched the program. I want to thank uh, Shani Barber, Judith Sucre, and Lisa Heller, each of whom are expert clinicians in their own right who agree to take the time from their busy schedules to sit on the Bechon Committee, uh, framing the vision for the general initiative and for this initial series in particular as we begin by focusing on the wellness of our children. If we're going to come together to talk about the challenges of raising teenagers, uh, I cannot think of a better speaker this evening than Dr. Sarah Rower. Dr. Rower is a psychologist, a PhD in clinical psychology from Yeshiva University's Furkhoff Graduate School of Psychology. Her area of focus, both in research and clinically, is in the field of eating disorders. Her previous clinical experiences include the work at the Ramaz School, the Refuge Center of New York, St. Luke's Obesity Research Clinic in New York, and Hadassah in Karim in Jerusalem. Sarah's area of research has focused on binge eating disorder, emotional eating, and night eating syndrome, a subject on which she published articles as well as presented at the Academy of Eating Disorders in 2008 and 2014. She has presented in a number of conferences as well as at area day schools and high schools, and Dr. Rohr maintains a private practice in Riverdale, New York. Uh, Dr. Rohr's reputation precedes her, as she is one of the go-to therapists in the New York, New Jersey area for teens, and it is a great honor and privilege to introduce Dr. Sarah Rohr. That last part was definitely not on the bio that I submitted. <laughs> Um, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me come. It's such um, an honor. Um, Rabbi Crone and the entire committee, I've mostly worked with Shani, but just from getting to know everyone here this evening, um, I feel like this is much more, um, I am in colleague land more than anything else, so it's an honor to speak um, tonight and really think together. Um, I, tend to, I tend to think that for the most part, um, we're all just having a conversation together and I'm really here, um, even though there's a podium and there's a slideshow, I'm hopeful that people will feel comfortable to stop me um, if they have something to share, if they have a thought, if they have a question. Um, I'm constantly thinking these things through. Um, Most of them are based on research, but some of them are not. Um, And some of them are just based on clinical experience um, and constantly thinking about all of these issues as a person, as a psychologist, as a parent, um, and hoping that we can think about them a little bit more together. So in that spirit, I'm actually going to move this over here a second. I'm mindful that I'm being recorded. Um, I actually had a whole presentation prepared, um, and it didn't start with this, just as an aside. Um, And I was 
really been toiling the last three weeks over the whole concept of parenting. Can I just ask a technical question? If I move to the middle, will I lose the recording? No. Excellent. Okay, because... Um, so anyways, I was thinking a lot about this idea of parenting, and I was thinking about how often I'm hearing over and over and over again that parents are so terrified that they're doing something wrong, that they're not doing something enough, that there's a right way, that there's a wrong way. Um, the amount of books that people are consuming um, was actually astounding to me. Like I had people telling me, I've read 20 books, and I've read, I'm following this number of people on Instagram who are giving me this parenting advice. And it really kind of jarred my own brain um, to something I'm hoping we'll touch on later. But I was thinking about the fact that, you know, how could we not kind of also think and touch about Israel and the war, because that's where so many of our brains are at. And I was thinking about how um, we happen to have been in Israel, actually, on Simchat Torah. And the first thing all the parents in the house did um, after we said Havdalah was to take away all the devices of the children within about, I would say, five seconds. Um, and we spent the next couple of weeks talking about what they learn, what they see. And it has continued to be a dialogue around the amount of information that's coming in. And it's not just about the information we're taking in. It's what we're reading, right? It's now become a conversation. How much am I consuming the news? What am I seeing? What am I hearing? What are my children seeing? What are my children hearing? Because it impacts how we function on a day-to-day basis and how our children function on a day-to-day basis. And I was thinking that it's actually the same thing with parenting, lahavdil in many ways, but also it's like an onslaught. You can't get away from it. Like, and it feels to me almost draining and exhausting. Like if you do this, then your children are really going to succeed. And if you do this, Hashem should help you because that's it. I mean, you might as well just close that parenting shop and be done. Um, And I think that it's actually creating parenting fatigue, particularly as children move into teenage years because, thank God, you've already been doing this for a lot of years. And so I think there's a tendency as children move into teen years that the physical aspects of parenting feel a tiny bit easier, but the emotional aspects of parenting actually feel so much harder And the things that we have to do in such a short period of time, if you just look at the discrete high school years, feels so much, right? We need to get them to launch. We need to get them to be responsible. And the shift is dramatic. And the the onerousness of it feels big and great. And it feels like there's a right and there's a wrong. And I think that the parenting fatigue is so high. In fact, I just saw an article. It was written in The Guardian. Um, talking about, I think they were saying that amongst United States, and like four other countries I sort of ignored, but mostly United States, um, was parenting fatigue was at 8%. And they were actually talking about parents just feeling totally exhausted um, and not actually being able to self-care in any way that felt meaningful, um, not being able to ask for help in a way that felt meaningful, um, not actually helping to modulate a certain amount of perfection. And as a result of the parenting fatigue, unintentionally, we're also modeling that to our kids, right? Like, I don't need to take care of myself. I don't ever have to ask for help. Um, And so our children who are learning to become real adults, in some ways, are unintentionally learning from our parenting fatigue, which might be coming from doubling down on parenting, but from the get-go, right? So it's like an over-intensity on parenting that kind of 
might be leading itself to a certain amount of parenting fatigue. And so I guess I wanted to frame this conversation a little bit with this idea of compassion and self-kindness. Like, what are we getting right as parents? Like, we're doing it all the time. And when we don't get it right, which we don't need to get it right, because it's not possible for us to get it right, are we having a certain amount of compassion to ourselves? Do we feel that because of that compassion, we can circle back to our kids? Like, I totally messed that up. I was having a moment. I was having a day. I also have days, and I also have moments. Can we try it again? And I think there's so much to gain from that, but I think that it's hard to get there if we're so critical of ourselves as parents um, and as people, which I think is tends to be the natural go-to over and over again, um, is just an instinctual criticism. Like, I totally messed that up, and I see it. It's almost like a camaraderie, right, like a parenting. There was actually, like, a tagline I saw that somebody said, no yelling parents. I'm like, I don't, that's, like, kind of inhuman, right? Like, we all have moments. Like, why is that a goal, like, out of the gate? Um, and, and it kind of harkened me back to something I had learned such a long time ago, but actually, really, I'm going to quote my own supervisor from graduate school, who I actually is my supervisor still to this day. Um, and she said to me, I was a very young parent, and I was toiling over leaving my kids, and I was doing this crazy thing where I would run to my office, then run back home to put someone to bed, and then come back to my office. And she looked at me, and she said, you know, there's something called healthy intentional neglect. I was like, oh, what's that? Tell me about that. <laughs> I need to know about that. And she's like, you know, not, sometimes it's okay to let them struggle. Sometimes it's okay not to be there to rescue it. Sometimes it's okay for them to go to home, school with homework. That's not 100% correct. Um, and it was like such an eye-opening moment. And I've kind of tucked it away. And so two weeks ago, I had this moment. It happened a little bit because um, my husband just sent me a text with like an Amazon link and the, it said bad therapy. There's a new book coming out. It's called Bad Therapy. Clinicians, it's not, it's not good news. Um, <laughs> um, by um, Abigail Schreier, who's um, kind of somewhat controversial, but she just recently wrote another book. Um, but she basically talks about how, what if, what if over-therapizing our kids is not actually good? And what if over-parenting our kids and the degree of parental, I think this is, the summary, TBD, book is incoming in March. Um, so first I was like, are you trying to drive me out of business? But he's like, no, 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 you've been talking about this. I think this is what you've been saying. Um, and I think there's something about this. And it kind of dawned on me, what happened to good enough parenting? So I actually, I'm gonna actually hold it up because I actually feel like everybody should leave here and get this book, get this article. Um, I was like, what did happen to good enough parenting? And sure enough, I like look up good enough parenting, where did it go? And this amazing article came up, uh, um, not scholarly, not overly researched, just in today's parent. And I actually shared it with somebody else, and she's like, did you write this? I'm like, I'm not a good writer. Um, so I gave up that research. Um, but um, it's basically, I could kind of hand it to you and walk out the door is really what I honestly feel. It really talks about this idea um, about what happened. A good enough parenting is not abdicating. It's not saying I don't care. It's not saying I'm not in it. It's actually just saying sometimes because I'm in it, I'm gonna make mistakes and sometimes I'm gonna do things really well and sometimes I'm not gonna do things really well. Um, it allows for much more compassion. It allows for much more independence on kids' parts. 
Um, it also, I think, was pointing out, this article actually pointed out something I thought was really fascinating, which is that, um, I'm gonna actually quote the statistics because I don't wanna get it wrong, um, but they were actually looking at the fact that Um, it was a 2012 comparison study in the University of California that when they compared rates of time that parents spent with their kids, um, and they compared it to the 1960s, mothers' time doubled and fathers quadrupled, and that still today, over, overwhelmingly, um, what we know is that kids um, whose moms work outside of the home um, there's no difference actually in terms of long-term effects. If anything, we sometimes see a positive effect, um, which I think might have to do with independence and self-care um, and taking care of themselves. So I say that not because I think anybody who doesn't work outside the home should go find a job, but more from the perspective that I think people beat themselves up a lot and to think about it from the perspective that there's lots of ways to go about doing this. Um, and so I just kind of want to frame that from that parenting perspective before we kind of dive in. The other thing I guess I want to say in this um, is two things. One is, and they're connected, there's a really um, special book called Far From the Tree um, by Andrew Solomon. And we've adapted it clinically over the years to thinking about not just kids who are really profoundly more developmentally different than us as parents, but the kids who are just different than us, right? Like the kid who's like, I walk upstairs and one kid's room is like organized and like has their school workout and the other room looks like four tornadoes have hit it, right? The kid that's totally different, right? Like I had one kid explaining to the other kid how to track laundry for camp and one kid looked at her and was like, I lost you at track laundry. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> um, so there is something about the fact that we have different kids who push our buttons differently, who we connect to differently. And I was thinking about the fact that we spend a lot of time today thinking about how to parent kids who are far from our tree but I was also thinking about how those kids experience the fact that somewhere inside them they know they're different than us also. And how do we balance that? And I think some of it comes from like a little more compassion, right? Like I know I'm not winning this and I'm just checking in. I know you and I struggle together in this moment. Like we're different, but like let's try to figure out how we can kind of come together around it. I think there's a little bit of like a moment of repair for ourselves and our kids when, when we're able to come at it from that point. Um, and the last thing I think is that this idea that I think one of the things I worry about today a lot with like the overparenting is that it feels like it means that every single moment has to be like really intense, really intentional. And part of this like notion of a, a perfect parent is that we're constantly looking at what our neighbor is doing and we're taking from that, whether it's on a social media platform or just in general, like, oh, you made Hanukkah cookies, I should make Hanukkah cookies, and if I don't make Hanukkah cookies, then I'm a really bad parent, and you, but the thing is, is that I don't like sprinkles, so if I don't like sprinkles, I haven't liked sprinkles, but if somebody doesn't like sprinkles, that's not a good choice for their house, right? Like, and I actually really think about walking parents through that, like, how do you set yourself up for success knowing yourself, knowing your kids, knowing what you're dealing with, and it's constantly shifting and changing. And I think like that is actually like a huge component to this story um, because I think that part of this is that we as parents also have to be more flexible with ourselves. Like we are different parents at different times in our life. We're not the same parent when we had one kid. Um, probably 
from a perspective, or a, the first, a first child for some people, if they've had multiple children, um, because we're not the same age. We maybe don't, aren't in the same stage in our life, whether it's from a resource perspective, a work perspective, responsibility perspective, it's shifted and changed. Maybe we've added people to the family, maybe we hadn't. Maybe we've had struggles that we didn't have when we first got married um, and had one kid. Things have changed. And so there is almost, I think, more a responsibility of less being a perfect parent and more being a flexible parent, right? Like, how can I shift gears? How can I shift values? How can I allow myself the space to know that my first couple, maybe a first kid had this experience, but I don't do that as much today because this has changed and shifted and allowing myself a little more flexibility of it. Um, and so kind of that experience. The other thing I think, which I'm gonna touch on later, but I just wanted to mention it here, is two other things. I think as a result of the extreme parenting, we're in it, we're in it, we're in it, and then we lose it, right? And actually I'm thinking about the fact that kids today in general, younger kids and older kids, we see are struggling with emotional dysregulation, right? They're fine, they're fine, they're fine, and then they lose it. If we mirror that to them, that we're in it, we're in it, we're so intense, and then we are just like, I just can't talk to you anymore, like I'm done parenting, and it's like six o'clock, but it's not gonna work. Um, but aside from that, we're actually mirroring that intensity, right? Instead of actually kind of modulating it a little bit more and being able to kind of say, you know what, I have an hour, I can really focus with you on it, and then I actually have to shift, I gotta take care of something else, we're mirroring much more modulation, we're mirroring much more regulation, it's this whole notion of like, if we're critical on ourselves, then we're modeling that we should be critical, that they should be critical. If we're modeling that we never take care of ourselves, then we're modeling that they should also never take care of themselves in order to be successful. So I think that like the extreme parenting is also, we're seeing it reflected in our kids, um, and I also think it's their emotional dysregulation matching our emotional dysregulation. Um, so that's one piece of it. And then the last piece is that I don't know your child. You know your children. And I think that parents should never, like, not trust that, right? Like, at the end of the day, even if you feel like you're lost in the woods and, like, you had it and you took a wrong turn, you are the ones who have known your child and children since birth. And I think that parents also have to be able to trust that instinct. And I think sometimes because they're getting so much input, we all are getting so much input all the time, we stop feeling like we can trust our gut. And I think that that's true of values. I think it's true of any decision we're making, like, well, so-and-so is doing X, Y, and Z, therefore maybe I should, right? But it's not just that. It's like, you know, I don't know what to do, and I don't have any sense of where I want to go with this. Instead of being able to say, like, I have a gut, I've lived with my child for a long time and being able to feel like you're still the expert on your child and have like some sense of where you want them headed and direction. And I think that's actually where the bad therapy book is coming from. Like how much are we relinquishing to psychologists instead of actually thinking about it from a parenting perspective, right? I would, you know, sooner rather see, particularly not high school, but middle school and under, parents saying, I need help with this, help me problem solve this, than, you know, all things being equal depending on the kid um, kind of doing the therapy on the kid. Because I think most of the time you are with your kids all the time. You are the experts on your children and you don't need to lose a sense of grounding on that. That's my, my two seconds. I'm gonna flip to this for a second. Any comments? What? I'm gonna keep going, but people should chime in. Um, okay, so this was where I really was gonna start. That was like kind of my add-on. 
Uh, but I think it's a good, it's an important add-on. Um, so what do we want for our teens? Like I, I, I came up with some, this is like what I usually come back to. I think a lot of them fit in, but I think we're not gonna get to all of them. Just looking at the time, I'm gonna do the best I can. Um, but I think these are the things I come back to over and over again, um, is a strong sense of identity and identity awareness. Um, I label it as three different components. One is core value building, one is self-confident, and one is strong, secure friend group. Emotionally aware and regulated, transition successfully in life, because I'm a eating disorder psychologist specialist, I have to put, maintain normal range, healthy weight, and kindness. It's at the bottom, but it's not the least important. It's probably amongst the most important. Um, so it's not, there's no like order of importance. Um, the reason I start with strong sense of identity and identity awareness um, is actually because one of the things we know today is that when people approach me to run eating disorder prevention programs in school, I say no, we don't do eating disorder prevention programs in school. We come in and people want to talk, and we, you know, they want somebody who's going to talk about what is an eating disorder, what's not an eating disorder. That doesn't prevent eating disorder, it makes eating disorders. That's what the good research shows, that schools feel really good because they've checked off a box, and that's not to minimize schools. I understand there's a tremendous amount of pressure on schools to run programs and feel like they are servicing a need. But what we know today is that overwhelmingly, kids who have strong core values, strong core identity, um, actually are the ones who are able to tolerate a lot of the outside influences that are gonna come and go with life. Um, so I always come back to this. It's kind of a little bit strange to me. I'm actually gonna take a second and, and just read it because I've come back to it year after year. Anna Quindlen, if anyone doesn't know any of her writing, her writing is so good. She's written lots of books. Um, I think since like my first like speaking time so many years ago back actually at SKA, I just recently went back there. Um, and I was struck by Anna Quindlen's writing. She writes a lot of books about eating disorders and girls. And one of her basic principles is that people who work so hard at being perfect and doing everything right, everybody has a moment when it falls apart. Everybody has a test that they fail. Everybody has a seminary they didn't get into, um, a date that didn't go well, a friendship that fell off, and if you have nothing that holds you inside, that makes you different, that you can know, that you can articulate, you're vulnerable to, list it, anxiety, it's more vulnerable to anxiety, depression, eating disorder, right? Eating disorder is much more of a manifestation of a struggle. Okay, put aside an eating disorder, talk about genetics and whatever, it doesn't matter, right? But, the, but the, for this purpose, we think about it more from this perspective of what holds a core together, right? What helps you stand through the vicissitudes of time. So I love this. I'm gonna take a minute actually and read it because I wouldn't even able, be able to do it right. Um, everyone should read the whole piece. I'm not gonna do it because it's actually really long. Anna Quindlen gave a Mount Holyoke speech, commencement speech um, in 1999. Um, this one's from Barnard, but the other one is actually um, from Mount Holyoke. It's actually hard to find. Um, but once you find it and read it, um, it's kind of mandatory reading for all people, mothers, children. Um, she says, I look at all of you today and I cannot help but see myself 25 years ago at my own Barnard commencement. I sometimes seem in my mind to have as much in common with that girl as I do with any stranger I might pass in the doorway of a Starbucks or in the aisle of an airplane. I cannot remember what she wore or how she felt that day but I can tell you this about her without question. She was perfect. Let me be very clear what I mean by that. 
I mean that I got up every day and tried to be perfect in every possible way. If there was a test to be had, I'd study for it. If there was a paper to be written, it was done. I smiled at everyone in the dorm hallways because it was important to be friendly. And I made fun of them behind their backs because it was important to be witty. And I worked as a residence counselor and sat on housing council. And if anyone had ever stopped and asked me why I did those things, well, I'm not sure what I would have said, but I can tell you today that I did them to be perfect in every possible way. And she goes on to talk about how to become unperfect. And so I think one of the things we wanna be teaching our kids is how to develop a core identity. And I actually think about the fact that the truth is the people who can help kids build their core identity more than anybody else are parents. We do it all the time because we know them the best, because we see them for who they are, and we have the loudest voice in their lives by and large, right? Most research shows that even though we know there's a shift from the social voice of teens um, in high school, the parenting voice is still the loudest voice. And, you know, I think the other piece of it is that we don't want to just wake up when they turn, enter ninth grade, and start imparting and dumping all of our values. We want to do it little by little by little over time. So repeating them, having them a little bit on, um, on repeat. And it, I think it ultimately goes to this idea of self-esteem, mostly because if kids think and have an ability to know what makes them special, then they're not looking for those external variables. They're able to feel that like, if I didn't do well on a test, you know, kind of goes back to real cognitive behavior therapy. If I didn't do well on a test, it's not because I'm really not smart. It's because I studied hard and you know what, like the test, I, I must, like, I just didn't do well this time. But most of the time I do really well on tests and it happens to everybody, right? And if I walk in a door and I'm five minutes late to class and everyone turns their head, it's not because I look strange. It's actually just because I'm five minutes late to class and I made a ruckus when I walked in the door. Um, and really starting to help kids feel that sense of self-esteem, right? And when they're with a group of friends that they've chosen, which is its own kind of category, um, that actually kind of, they're able to think about how do these people make me feel? Do they know what, do I, do they, do they and I both know why I'm part of this friend group? Um, and really kind of thinking about that and helping kids to talk about it and identify it. I actually happen to think that part of why we're actually currently see if you, this is like my own hypothesis, similar to some of these other things yet to be proven, but I do happen to think that part of why we saw some real social challenges for high schoolers currently had to do with, um, if you traced it back, those were a lot of the COVID middle school kids. And middle school is actually awful. It's awful socially. It's horrible, right? Like, you can't even keep up with the drama if you tried, nor should you, right? Go back to screen one and two. Like, maybe it's not worth it. Um, but it's actually so critical, right? It's critical for them to be kicked out of a friend group and find a new friend group and to ask themselves, why do I want to be with this group of friends? And do these people make me feel good about myself? When we don't do that, right? So then we're actually not able to actually develop a core group of friends in high school, mostly because we also don't know ourselves, right? And so really stopping to think about that. Um, and looking at our kids more often than not and saying, what do you think? What, what do you think? Like, I don't know. Like, when I put this on, I don't love this color on me. Or when I'm reading this, this doesn't resonate with me. Or I really don't like this book. Or I listened to this class and it really didn't sit well with me. Or I really was uncomfortable when I was here. Or this is really an important Torah value in our home. Or we really feel that 
this place is a really special place in our family, whether it's a yeshiva, whether it's a shul, whether it's a somewhere, you know, a family place, right? Like, what are our values? Where are we headed? What's the roadmap we're giving to our kids um, that's coming from a place of core values and core identity? It's not just so that you, it's not, it's not the fantasy of control that we're trying to mold our kids into them becoming us. It's actually helping them think about what's really important to them and what are their talents, right? So if everybody's trying out for a team, do you like that? Like, I don't know, everyone's doing it, I gotta have a jersey because I gotta go to this, but like, I don't know, like, let's just sit for a second. Like, when you go to all the chesed places, I know everybody went to this chesed, but like, I don't know, you find, I don't know, this is one of the, you find old people very scary. Like, okay, that's my daughter, she finds old people very scary, we're working on it, it's a growth and process. You probably shouldn't, pick that volunteer project. That's not a great place for you to grow. Maybe in two years from now, that would be a good growth, but like, if that's so, that doesn't make you not a chesed person, that doesn't make you not a kind person. So really being able to help those kids kind of develop that core identity that they have a place to move from. Um, the difference between a core identity and core value, just as an FYI, in the way that I think about it, is a core value is, I think, more family values, like kindness, Torah values, um, ethical values, like what makes you kind of, where do you come back to in terms of how you make decisions versus identity pieces might be more like, do you like singing? Um, do you, what are your hobbies that are different from somebody else's? Um, I can't, you know, I'm gonna jump ahead for one second just because I want you to see it because it's pretty cool. Uh, okay, so this is really interesting because one of the things we did, oh, I don't think I have this one. <laughs> But when we actually did a project, all with core identities, actually at SKA, um, so the kids produced amazing artwork. So like this kid's artwork was actually about her own manifestation of the things that are so hard for her that weighs on her brain. And this is herself on the bottom trying to push out all the negative things. Um, and so she wrote about being beautiful and smart and self-worth. Um, this one was really all about, she had the inner critic up here, and she wrote, you are enough. Um, and she had up here different aspects of herself that she felt really good about and really special about. When I've done it with, um, this is a self, uh, we'll come back to it, but like a, a more of like a emotional regulation piece of it. But I think that when you, when you get kids and start tapping into that and asking them, like, I've seen it with sixth graders, I've seen it with seventh, eighth, and I've seen it with high school kids. And every time when we roll it out, there's like a tremendous amount of skepticism. They're like, they're not gonna sit with pen and paper and colored markers and stickers and draw about themselves. And every single time they produce the most brilliant, amazing artwork, we just haven't asked them. We haven't asked them, like, what makes you you? If I opened it up, if I peeled it back, what makes you different than the person that's sitting next to you? What do you feel really good about? Um, and I think that's what we're trying to cultivate because then they can come back to that. Like the person snubs them, they're able to have much more um, like that capacity to like, it, there's like a certain amount of resilience that is able to come back and say to myself, you know what? Like, it's not because they didn't like me. I'm a really great person. I'm a really special person. This must've been going on with them. There's a certain amount um, of um, just reflection and coping skills um, that are really, really different. Um, the um, building blocks of confidence. So I think this is actually something I really push parents to think a lot about. Um, 
which is this is more about what we model. So I've moved over the years, right? For a while, it was all like, you model, you model, you model, and then the kids like absorb it by osmosis. So like, but always the classic example is like, if you want your kids to go to Minion, you gotta go to Minion, right? But then all of a sudden I was like, yeah, but if you're not actually taking them to, like, does that work always? Or if you're not articulating the value, like, will they always pick it up by osmosis? So I feel like we've shifted over the years to actually kind of combining these things. We don't just have to do it, we also have to say it, we also have to articulate it in different ways, in different opportunities. Um, I think less from a like larger, like loud, like communal gathering, like let us share our personal family home values here. And more just when you see those moments, like leaning into them, like jumping into them um, and having them open. But I also happen to think that in the vein, of our kids listening to us, being around us, and absorbing us, I really push parents to think about how we talk about ourselves, how we talk about our own self-confidence, how do we talk about our successes, how do we talk about our failures, um, how do we think about it from a growth mindset perspective a little bit, like I didn't do this yet, I'm going to try again, I'm not awful, um, really thinking about the way in which we talk to our kids about their accomplishments, are we talking about it as an end goal? Are we talking about it um, as a process of their work, right? So if we're parents and everyone falls in somewhere else, right, that goes back to know yourself, know your own personal values. I can't put those, I'm not here to put those values on anybody else's family, right? Some people feel like grades are really important and some people feel like grades are less important. But I think most parents would agree that they want their kids to study or they want their kids to put in effort, right? Um, I think sometimes, again, thinking about this extreme parenting, we're so nervous about kids having total meltdowns that maybe we've pulled back on our expectations for kids, right? So, um, you know, it happens to be that the one that the speaker who's coming in, I think, February, so Michal Palkovitz and I happen to be related. So we were like actually kind of like checking in with each other. Um, and she's like, so this is a dovetail to her, which is why are kids not launching, right? And she's gonna talk all about that. And I would say that I think some of it has to do with the fact that we're over-parenting, then we're exhausted, then we get to high school, and we don't exactly know how to switch. Like nobody told us like how to switch so that we can up the ante of their responsibility and up the ante of their independence. And it's not naturally woven into our society here today. Um, you know, kids in other places, like in Israel, actually have a lot more independence than we give our kids. Pluses, minuses, like, it's settled everywhere. It's not all for good and it's not all for bad, but I think it is something that we want to be thinking about. It also builds their own sense of self-esteem. You're also showing your kids just flipping it back. If I'm asking them for help, I'm signaling that I need help. And if I need help, then I'm showing my kids that it's okay to need help. That's a really powerful moment. And so it really trickles downward. Um, and so that's kind of how I tend to think about this idea of building blocks of confidence and also really thinking about intrinsic versus extrinsic, right? In other words, is it just, I feel really confident about something because it happened on the outside and I had nothing to do with it versus pulling it to the kids on the inside. Well, no, like I really watched you like really rally behind yourself and I really saw that you pushed yourself and that was so impressive. Or like you really were organized and you were able to kind of, find that moment. And by the way, it doesn't have to be in that moment. Like that's where I go back to this idea. Like, yeah, sometimes we're going to be able to catch our kids in that moment. And sometimes we're not, and we don't have to do it all the time, every single time to have those building blocks. Again, it's like the good enough moments, right? It's like the average moments that we're able to sit and we're able to connect. Um, 
because we're people and we're human and we just um, are doing lots of different things. Um, and I also think just in terms of really thinking to our kids about their accomplishments. Like sometimes I look at a kid and I'm like, what do you think your parent does for like free time or like self-care? They're like, they don't. I'm like, that's not true. Go back, ask, and they'll come back with lots of interesting things. They just didn't know, right? They didn't know that like that's what their parent did um, to like do something other than work. And so for them, actually, this idea of actually like really kind of an interesting um an interesting moment where this young woman had thought that her mother had given up her career and she looked at her as giving up her career as like the worst thing that could possibly happen to her and so she was desperate to never do that but then in retrospect she never bothered to ask the mom and when I was talking to the mom the mom said she never asked me that the reason that I switched careers they can they were a foreign family that came from from abroad and so she couldn't practice here she's like actually because also like I wanted to be with my kids more she's misunderstood my value this whole time she thought the value was get a job be the most accomplished that you could be and she's a classic kid who has made it she'll get into any college she wants she has scored perfectly everywhere and she is as empty as could possibly be and it's painful right because she gave up every creative thing that she ever had because she thought it wasn't worthwhile and it wasn't good enough. And so now it's like we're cobbling it back and she needs to go to college, but like she can't go to college, right? Because it actually, um, she's not prepared to do it. And it's like the saddest, it's actually the saddest, and she feels sad, right? Like it's the saddest situation and that's what we're trying to avoid, right? We're trying to look at our kids and say, what do you, what, what, makes, what makes your heart beat? What, what, what makes you excited? Um, and, and at the same time, really being mindful ourselves that our kids are picking up like all of our values, all of our decisions, all of our choices, and trying to like maybe be a little, like a little appropriate sharing. Here's how I got here. Like, here's why I chose this. Um, and thinking about it in a little bit more, um, a little bit more flexible of a way. Um, and, and as parents risking imperfection a little more. Okay, this, I'm looking at the time. Okay, this I think is, is actually really critical and important, particularly for friendships. So one of the things I think is actually um, challenging today and it actually dovetails with the last um, with the last slide. I think most of us are so good at communicating kindness. Like we want our kids to be kind people. Like I think overwhelmingly, I could be wrong. I could be really optimistically wrong. But I think most people want their kids to be kind. They want their kids to be inclusive. And I think one of the challenges actually that I'm seeing is that as a result of that, kids are actually having a hard time forming small friend groups. And, not, and feeling okay to have a small group of friends that they sit with at lunch, and it's okay. And they don't have to be, oh, like every group doesn't have to be 30 kids and 20 kids. So like, how do you be kind, but also have your good friends? Like, I, I'm watching it over and over again. And so I think that we wanna help kids articulate, you can be kind and still have a core group of friends. It's actually really important, it's important. And you can have different layers of friends, and helping kids, they can't, it's a mishmash in their head. And they're actually, I think, I, that's my opinion, that it's a mishmash in their head. They're feeling a little tortured by it. Um, and there's a lot of pressure to like be very inclusive. And it, sometimes I think it's like causing them then to feel very unkind, but then they don't feel like they have close friendships. So I think it's something to put in people's back of their head that we're holding both things for them. You can be kind 
that's not what kindness is necessarily, right? There's a difference between being like not kind versus not having your own friend group. But the other thing I go after over and over and over again is choosing friends that are the right fit instead of the fit that you think you should be with. Like I've said it better over the years, but like that's the most succinct one. Um, and it's basically like, am I with a group of friends? Cause I think that's the group of friends I need to be with, I'm supposed to be with, but I actually, it's not really a great match. Like if every time you're with those group of friends, you're constantly thinking to yourself, they don't really wanna hang out with me. I'm constantly scurrying to see where they are. I'm constantly feeling left out. There is a moment where they know it. Like our kids are savvy, our kids are smart. They just haven't been able to take the leap to say maybe it's not a good fit, right? And it's okay for us also to look at those kids and say it's not a good fit. The flip of this is as parents, how do we swallow that, right? Let's say our kids have a falling out with a good friend of ours. That's uncomfortable, right? Like what if that, what if our good friend's kids actually it's not a good fit for our kids? They're wonderful, but it's not a good fit. Um, and how do we, or what if we actually feel uncomfortable with the friend choices that our kids make? Like maybe they're not as fast, maybe they're not as smart, maybe they're not as cool, whatever that means. Maybe they don't have like the same conversation. I actually looked at my kids, I was like, can you explain to me, do you think that group is talking about something different than this group? And they're like, probably not. I'm like, yeah, so what, how did you, how do you pick? Like, how did you find it? You know, I got the usual teenage unhelpful. I don't know, they're just vibing differently. And I was like, that's not a thing. Okay. <laughs> it's not a real word. Um, so, you know, that took some conversation. Um, but I think that there is something about helping them figure out who they're most comfortable with, right? Who they feel like it's not so far outside of their friend tree. But also as parents, I think we got to put ourselves in check. I think we have to just be so aware of our own we would say like the counter transference, like what I'm putting out there in terms of like the judgments I'm having about my kids' friends. Again, you know these kids longer than anybody else. I think there's always the difference if you feel like your kids are falling into a group of friends that are value different, right? You're worried that it's too fast. You're worried that it's not safe. Like I think that's an extreme different. So I'm not talking about the extreme different, but I am talking about like the more middle of the road average group of friends. But I, I, just to touch on that extreme for a second, I just go back to the basic building blocks. Like, trust yourself a little bit, right? If it's, and, and if it's outside of a core value, it's okay to say it. It's okay to say, like, I just don't think that this, this group of friends feels to me like it's too fast. Like, I'm not loving what's happening here. Like, these girls were over, and I'm just like, I don't know, I was a little surprised by this conversation. That's an okay thing, to, in my opinion. That's an okay thing to say as parents. It's okay to put our thumb on it. I think, yes, is it possible that your kid will turn around and say, you just don't understand, walk upstairs, slam the door. Yes, it is possible. But then oftentimes they will come back and be like, okay, let's try this again. Or I saw that was really upsetting to you. Let's try, let's try this again. Um, or they may not. But I think, it's, I think that nobody ever, what I oftentimes hear, in retrospect, when I look at, when I have college kids in my practice, they'll oftentimes say like, how come my parent, especially like with eating disorders, like eating disorder stuff, how come my parent like didn't help me more? And it's like, if you only knew that your parent was so scared of you, that they didn't think they could say no, or they didn't think they could lean in, so they didn't. So it almost is like, either way, your kid's going to blame you. So you might as well, <laughs> that's the good news of the night. So you might as well come out on the side of your values. 
and kind of feel like, listen, I, I, I kind of, this is where I fall. This is how I feel about it. We can keep talking about it. We can keep having a conversation about it. This one's a hard one for me to shake and, and being able to kind of circle back to it. Um, so I, I think that like those aspects, um, and again, just keeping in mind their brains aren't fully formed. So I think they're having that gut emotional reaction and not forgetting that like where our brains, where our kids frontal lobe, right? So like slow down. I know you're upset. I know you feel this way. Let's try this again. Um, especially because they, the, the jump is big, right? Like when they leave high school and go on to wherever they're going, they have a lot of things they have to do. They got to start picking in theory careers, in theory date, feed themselves, create a schedule for themselves, self-regulate. So we don't want to constantly be doing it all for them because they'll get to the finish line and be like, now you want me to do what? Like, yeah. I think this gets back to your earlier point when you started with the overparenting. Yeah. How can someone have self-confidence and be independent yeah. if for 18 years they've been overparenting? Yeah. And a lot of us probably think back when we were kids and some people would say, well, in hindsight, man, my parents let me do everything. And like, wow, that was awesome. Right. Um, right. They made me really independent and I made decisions myself. And to your point, sometimes they're wrong decisions. Yeah. But they were but they were a decision. And there may have been outcomes and hopefully they don't yeah. get killed. Or right, yeah, no, I think it's right. I think what happened is, is that there was this feeling like, well, first of all, I think some of it, some of it came from a fear of, of fast moving technology, right? Like if you move to this one, you know, I think some of it came out of a fear of fast moving technology, right? Like, and then feeling like everything was spinning out of control. And I think there was a manifestation that if I overparent, then I can somehow magically control the outcome of what my child will look like. I think in that vein, though, A, it doesn't work, right? Like, that's what we know. Well, we, from a, if, we t- if we take a total step back, right, and we look at the best religious research out there today, we know, like, the research shows, I hate to say that, but that's what it is. The research shows that kids who feel like their parents are authentic, in other words, they're not just doing it, but, like, it comes from a real rich place. Like, they believe in Hashem. They believe in God's role in this world, they, like in a deep way, that kids actually feel much more connected to Torah and religion. So it really is a much more authentic experience. I think there was this feeling like we can control all of it. So if I am present 24-7 and I'm over-parenting 24-7 and I'm giving my children everything, they'll never make a mistake. I guess, yeah, they will never make a mistake until they do because they can't actually function in real society and in real life. Um, I think about it even from the perspective that there was like a whole shift where pa- kids w- weren't writing emails to te- uh, kids weren't writing emails to teachers, right? Parents were calling. I remember the first time I actually said to my daughter, "You have to write this teacher." She wrote, "Dear so and so, love Layla." I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> I was like, "That's not how we talk to teachers." <laughs> but it was an activity, right? In other words, it was a learning moment because she had to learn how to do it. Let's sit. Let's edit this. Let's go back. Let's start again. Um, but there is something about learning how to stand up for yourself, learning how to write write a letter. I think that we've just abandoned it over time, and I think it's because we're just a little bit we're scared, right? We're really scared. I think the social. I just want to just just to the point around the social media piece, and I think why why we got so crazy as parents. I, I'm going to say this because I want to just calm it down. The the most the best research out there is really mixed on, on technology. Like, just as an aside, like, it's hard for us to tell. I'm not actually, like, a overly tech 
loving person. But if I just pull my research brain, right, and hold to that for a second, the one piece we do know um, is that it's hard to know what's causing what. If I'm more depressed, am I more likely to spend more time on social media? If I feel like I have no friends, am I more likely to stalk all my friends' social media accounts, right? The, the piece, I think one of the things everybody settles on is that technology versus social media are two different beasts, right? So social media, by and large, aside from the fact that it's actually illegal, right? But okay, fine, put that aside. Put that, put, put that piece aside, right? Because technically the kids aren't allowed to have accounts, whatever, fine. Let's just put that category aside. I think it's hard to figure out how to navigate it, right? Like, what are they seeing? What are they not seeing? How are they using it? There's interesting research to show in general that like how you use um, an interface like Instagram versus hovering versus scrolling actually has an impact on how it affects you. So scrollers tend to have by overwhelmingly, again, research, research is not nuanced. Books are not overwhelmingly, right? We're giving manuals. They're not overly nuanced. That's the, that's the danger of them. It's why I tend to shy away from them because I feel like they sound really good and there's a lot of importance behind them, but sometimes they're not so helpful because they're not so nuanced and individuated. So we can use them for manual and helping us kind of figure out how to like implement big programming, but from a day-to-day -day basis, they can be challenging. So by and large, scrolling tends to be lower rates of depression and anxiety. It's a boredom. It's like I'm flipping it open and I'm scrolling by comparison to hovering, which is much more like self-examination, self-comparison. The Pew study that's cited here basically shows that how kids function in real life with their friendships somehow mirrors overwhelmingly the amount, the way in which they engage with social media. So if they have good core friendships and they feel like they're in a solid group, they're more likely to spend less time on social media, they're more likely to spend less time comparing themselves, and their relationship with it is healthier. So again, uh, you know, there's a million and one reasons, you know, I can't exactly particularly find the benefits to a lot of them, but I think about how do you tangle it out, right? Is there a difference between WhatsApp? And, and I think it's important to tangle it out. Is there a difference between WhatsApp by comparison? And I'm talking about teenagers, right? Is there a difference between like high school? Is there a difference between WhatsApp versus, versus social media platforms? And I think there is. There's an argument made in terms of thinking about how kids um, communicate, how kids talk in groups and share. Um, but again, they're spending the bulk of their days in school. Like, I think that's the piece I just kind of want to just like remind everybody, like by and large, they're spending the bulk of their days in school. And I think it also goes back to the fact that social, you know, again, why is it so extreme? Like, let's get rid of it. Let's keep it. Because parenting with technology is exhausting. Like, honestly, like it's a, it's a, it's a full-time job. I mean, it's like, did you check your kid's phone? Did you not check your kid's phone? Should I check my kid's phone? Should I not check my kid's phone? Did I check what history they went into? Did I check their conversations? It's really exhausting. And so I think there's a lot of burnout and fatigue. So on the one hand, there's an instinct. Let me just get rid of all of it because it's simpler and cleaner and I'm not going to be able to access all of it. Or do we basically have to also say, similar to good enough parenting, similar to other things, that I'm going to make the best judgment for myself knowing what number child I'm dealing with, right? What the pecking order is, right? That's gonna be different. First kid might be easier than another kid that's further down. Um, what's my parenting bandwidth? Um, and if I'm choosing to have, let my kid have access to X, Y, and Z, am I <clears throat> having conversations about it? Like that to me is always the point I come back to, right? So if your kid's watching a show, are you having a conversation?
television, do you at least know that they watch that show? You know, or, and by the way, it happens to all of us. We pop up, open whatever streaming thing we're watching. We're like, why does it say four episodes have been watched of this? Like, okay, like that happens because we're people and we're human and we're busy lives. But then at least do we feel, instead of sitting and wallowing in our bad parenting moment, are we going back and saying, I've been really out of it. I noticed you've watched the four episodes of the show. What are you thinking about it? It's not exactly what I would have picked. Like, can we just talk about it for a second? I think that feels much more, but it requires, that is a lot of work, right? But it's a different type of work. I'm just, like, transparently, it's a lot of work, but it's a different type of work, um, and it's a little more modulated, and I think it's a little bit, I think it's a little kinder. Um, yeah, the other piece, I'm just going to flip into this for a second. Um... Okay, this I just, I want to pop this in because I'm looking at the clock and I have four minutes and I want to take questions. I think this piece around it, and I didn't even get to eating disorder C, so that's all, all well and good. Okay, um, which is, um, I'll say one thing about it at the end. Um, emotionally aware and self-regulated. Um, I think this goes similar to this idea of self-confidence. I think that part of the challenge is that kids are feeling a lot, and I think we are scared of our kids' feelings, Potentially because we're scared of our own feelings and maybe we don't even know how to manage them. And so I think we want to be thinking a little bit from like a more like self-aware perspective of ourselves. Like, do I know what I'm feeling on a regular basis, right? So that jar that you saw, if you notice that jar with that like face, that was actually like an emotional jar, right? We had kids actually fill up emotional jars. Because if I say to a kid, what does happiness feel like? They like blank, right? Kids like, it, what does sadness feel like? Is there a difference between sadness and anxiety? Is there a difference between anxiety and anger, right? So we're actually trying to help kids a little bit kind of dig in, but some of it comes from us. Um, and I also feel like there's a piece of this, which is how do we as parents also accept our kids' feelings around us um, and also feeling like you have the capacity to change them. Like you're feeling anxious right now, but like it's going to pass. Like what can you do to make it pass? Like this is what I do sometimes when I have anxiety, right? Like there's a little bit of sharing, but it's also sticking with it. It's also reminding them that feelings come and go and we can pay attention to them. Um, and also I think sometimes as parents, we get very panicky, understandably, right? Like kid comes home, I'm freaking out. I'm this, they're just totally flying and our heart rate gets totally activated, right? And they're like, I don't know what to do with my child. Like a monster has taken over. I can't deal with this. Instead of actually just being able to take a step back and say, you are putting out a lot right now. <laughs> just every, I feel like it's okay. Like it looks like you've had a day. Like what do you need right now to bring your day down to like a place that is manageable for everybody in this house and yourself? Like what can you do, right? There is something about teaching kids, right? Like when they're so super activated and you're watching them furiously study for a test as they're like crying, right? There's a moment to lean in and be like, we don't study like this. Like this is not a thing. Like take a minute. Calm yourself down. Do you need to take a shower? Do you need to reset? No information is being learned right now, right? So we're actually helping our kids. Like, how are you feeling right now? Can you lower your emotional thermometer and start this all over again? So I think there is like a real piece. The reason I say that is actually from like something I've seen further out, right? So sometimes even, I'm gonna use a totally different example. Sometimes even it's like, let's say they hung out with friends and they're coming back and you see they're headed out again and you see they're like frazzled right and you look and you're just like do you want to like what's happening right now i gotta go i don't want to miss out right how do we help kids with fomo right like i hear it all the time like okay 
do you want to go? Uh, no, I'm totally done. I like, I'm talked out. Okay, that, that maybe, maybe you just gotta put a pin in it because you're not gonna be your best self and that's not gonna be a good dynamic. How do you give yourself a little bit of permission to know that like maybe your social battery is like a 75% and then you gotta recharge and somebody else's is 95 and who cares? That like you don't have to be, it goes to the core identity and core value. You don't have to be at 95%. Sometimes that translates later in life. I see this a lot in seminary, right? It's non-stop. I see it in camp, non-stop. How do we teach kids? I do it, but you can do it, right? It's not, it's actually not rocket science, right? How do we teach our kids? Your, your emotional or social, whatever it is, is rising. You're on your third Shabbos of being out with friends. Maybe you don't wanna do that. Maybe you wanna call that friend that's like that family friend that you can just go and reboot. How do you give yourself permission to do it? You can only do it if you know it about yourself. So I think like that's the other piece of it. The last thing I'm just gonna, I ran out of time. This is what happens, I'm sorry. The last thing I just want to point out about this is um, I think eating disorders by and large, it's, it's less about eating disorders and more about disordered eating. And I would say this, more than anything else, I think it's our, you know, you're going to have the core identity, you're going to have the depression, you're going to have the anxiety, you're going to have all those aspects that all funnel in. Most kids are not going to develop a raging eating disorder from all those things. Some might, but most don't, right? Like that's the truth of it, right? Because there's so many other pieces coming down that, 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 that funnel. Um, but I think the piece that we come back to over and over again, that I hear overwhelmingly over and over again, which I think is the hardest, is what are we modeling as parents? Like, what are we modeling? What are we modeling in our home? How do we, how do we model in our home? How do we model um, moderation in our homes? Um, and I think it's really hard and really challenging. Um, so, um, you know, because we don't want to be setting our kids up. There's a great book. I just, I just got it, and I'm gonna, I actually brought it with me. It's not so good. It's fine. It's, 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 did I leave it at home? I left it at home. Okay. Um, okay. It's it's a new book ish. It's by Cole Kazdan. It's called. I put it. Uh, what's eating us? It's very fast. It's a very fast read. That's why I like it. It was very fast. But she basically talked about how she herself had been editing herself out of her children's life. She realized that she went back to look at photos and she couldn't find any photos of herself because she had edited all the photos out that she didn't like of herself because the one time her husband had taken a photo and didn't check with her, she like lost it on him. And so then he checked every photo with her and she inevitably didn't like any photo. And so there were no photos of her with her child that she had like had real, um, like, you know, not that it would matter, but for her like tremendous fertility challenges, it was a baby that she finally was able to adopt and she had basically edited herself out of this child's life. And so, you know, yes, is it a story about how do we help our kids love themselves and love their bodies and feel more than the sum total of their weight and their clothing? Yes, but it's also more of a messaging for us as parents, right? How are we modeling? And they pick up everything, right? Whether it's, you know, how many times we've changed our outfits or our clothes, which we all do because we're human and we're going to, right? That's the, that's the messaging that I think kind of being kind of more honest, more aware um, of it. You know, how many times at Chavez are we not having dessert um, and everybody else is? It just, it's, it's a balancing act. Now, I never tell, you know, the reality is, right, no parent is going to eat and should eat like a 16-year-old child. Like, that's not a thing, right? Like, it's just not, and it's okay to say that. But I think there's a happy medium place. Um, and I think we can find it um, a little bit better than we are. Um, 
and that we're doing. And so I kind of just put it out there and I, and I, and I know like there's fears on every side of it and it's all equal, right? I actually think it's really important, but I, then I go back to the fact that they're leaving our homes, right? So they're going to do whatever they want. And so if we've just done it and overparented and overcontrolled them because it's made us feel really good, but then when they're out in the real world and have to feed themselves, like, do they know how, right? Like, I'm all about all cereals, but seminary kids have cereal nonstop for dinner. Like, it's also, like, I, like it's just, like, I don't know, like, that's just something that's happening. But that's not a dinner, right? So how do we help kids recognize that, like, that's not a good dinner choice even when you're bored and you're tired and you don't want to cook for yourself? Um... So I think the same is true of yeshiva boys having like random sandwiches in, in yeshiva. Like it's, it's, it's all the same problem. It just, you gotta like swap it out for what the item is um, and what they have available. So, okay, I'm gonna pause. I'm sorry I ran out of time. Um, I wanna just open questions, thoughts, comments. Closing. Just me, all good. I want to know where that was going. Okay. I'm not a fan of Shabbos cereal. I know. Like Nobody right. is. <laughs> like, are you pro or con? I'm just curious. Well, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll give you the theory behind it, and then I'll tell you. Um, I, I tend to think that, in general, this is, like, was my, like, um, I have it out here because I've become a little bit, like, it's like a tagline for me a little bit. I think that the, here's the issue with Shabbos cereals is that, it's not about the Shabbos cereal per se. And some people used to be like, well, are you saying that we shouldn't have something special for Shabbos? Like, I'm also not making a random chocolate bunk cake on a random Monday and serving it for dinner, right? Everybody has things that are special for Shabbos. Um, I think the challenge is, are we creating a scenario in which kids feel like there's a time on, how, on when they can eat something? And as a result of that, they're overeating. So if they're sitting down with tricks on Shabbos morning and they're having three bowls of it because it's special for Shabbos, which I totally get and understand because you only have 24 hours, if you are lucky, to eat that Strix, okay? That's what's happening, right? That's what's happening. So then that's what that's the narrative. That's what ends up happening. So it's not specifically like, like you know, like cereal neither here nor there. I don't think it's like the most nutritious like food in the whole universe. Anyways, I never tell kids like... If you ever want your kid to fill, fill up for a good breakfast, like, cereal's not the thing. Everybody's more hungry after they've had a bowl of cereal. Like, personally, I, you know, whatever. But if you asked me in my own, you know, small research sample of my house, what I've been kind of researching on them for the last, you know, 15 years, <laughs> is that, you know, they've had access to Shabbat cereals their whole, like, all week, and I'm still throwing. I'll, like, it's not like I'm clearing, I'm dumping. Like, I'm done. Like, it's, they'll choose Honey Nut Cheerios or regular Cheerios or eggs, just as equally as they're choosing the Fruity Pebbles. But it is the kids who don't have it that are having three bowls when they come in the house. So the same way that, like, you know, again, and I don't think it's, like, this, you know, I don't, I actually do not think it's that. So, and by the way, just, just to your point, right? So, you know, I do think the same thing is true of, like, snacks, right? Having it available, having it out. But I don't think that means that you don't say no. Right? I think that's different, right? So to your point, if it's a Shabbos cereal, then at 4 o'clock on Shabbos, I still get to have that Shabbos cereal instead of like, no, it's 4 o'clock. You don't, like, if you're hungry, let's have, a, let's have a different snack. So I think that parents heard it and was like, I guess you're telling us we never say no. And I'm like, no, I'm just saying you don't want to create this narrative of like binge versus not versus good food versus bad food. 
it's hard to come back from it. It just is. It's hard to come back from it, right? And not all food is good. Not, she actually, Cole Kazan, in her books, has a great article. She's like, if you eat pizza every single day, yeah, it's probably not a great food choice for you. That's not healthy. It doesn't have a lot of wide-range nutrients. But if you have pizza, you know, once a week and you have it at, like, your family time and everyone's coming together, then that's a, that is a good food because everybody got around the table. They shared a wonderful meal. They talked to each other. They connected. There's nothing wrong with it. It's about moderation. I think we fear that, like, they'll jump the shark and never stop eating anything but pizza. And I think that, like, we have to fight it a little bit. You'll see a spike. Anytime you introduce something new, you see a spike. But then it drops. I, I, I like, uh, that's what I found historically. Yeah, second question. So the, I think you. I think this goes back to you have to know your kids. So I think the two things. One thing's the two things we have to remember about emotionally regulated, dysregulated for ourselves, watered and fed. It's like a plant, right? If they haven't had water, which they don't in school, I, I mean they have a little bit. Like they take the water bottles every day and then lose them, and you have to buy more. But like so, in theory, they have water. Um, but if they're not watered, right, and they're not fed, they're going to come in super hot. Like there's just no other explanation for it. It's like a tornado, right? You see it coming, like. And they can't sit down, and you want them to sit down to start homework because you want to get it out of the way. So I think you have to know your kids. Some kids you can look at and say, you look like you've had a day. What do you need to calm down? TV might calm them down, but it also might not. You might be like, do you want to go sit outside and swing? Do you want to sit in color for a little bit? Do you want to read a book with me? Like, you may not have time. That may not be an option, right? So I think that, like, sometimes there is a space to figure out it could be a TV show. I think sometimes kids have to come in the one challenge, and I don't know it because different kids are really different, right? Some kids can shift. Some kids can shift, okay, I watched a TV show for half an hour, and now I'm ready to move on, and I'm, I'm regulated. Some kids, I'm just delaying the dysregulation, so I'm, for a moment, solving it, which, again, has its values. Just know what you're doing, right? Some days, you might, you might need that. You might need to just punt the dysregulation for a half an hour because then you can deal with it, but then you'll know because... Someone else needs to do homework. You have to finish up a work thing. You have to make, finish making dinner because just life. And then, so I think there's also trial and error, right? Also seeing like what time are they coming home? What kid is it? Do they need to go somewhere else? Do they need to change their homework environment? Um, I think it's, I think it's actually, I think it's on an individual basis. I'm not, I'm not, I'm actually intrinsically not opposed to most things because I just think each kid is really different and different homes require different things and so I think like that is a piece of the puzzle I also think age dependent there is a space to look at kids and be like the last week you have walked in and it is so much like it feels so much for me like how and I see for you this must feel awful like if you ever actually ask a kid who's calm they'll they'll tell you it feels terrible like it feels terrible for them to be so dysregulated they hate it like it doesn't feel good for them to do it. Um, and, and, I, and just as a reminder, again, this is like this piece that we say it all the time, but parents kind of roll their eyes, which is if they're walking in dysregulated, that means they held it in all day long. And it means your house is a safe space 
for them to totally lose their minds. And so like, it's awful for you, but it's really good for them. Like they did it. They made it through, they made it through the day. Like it's actually, yeah, you know, so it's a different piece, but I think like being able to say like, wow, you really had a day. Like, what do you need right now? And also remembering if they're dysregulated, it's hard to have a conversation with them. So like calming them down, water, feed, and then make a decision about what's next. That would be my best kind of advice on that one. I know the hour is late. Any other comments? Comments? Yeah. In most areas of life, I think, when you're being successful, you do something well, you have some type of feedback, some way of knowing that you're doing well, and then you're like, okay, good, now I can like do this again because I've done well. Um, for other people's kids, there's we feel at times like, I think I'm doing this right, right? But we have, sometimes you get that moment, that's amazing, but oftentimes you don't get that moment. So uh, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on like, being able to either figure out ways yourself to, to actually get feedback to figure out that you are doing well, or that's how you got life, and you know, maybe you just have to find a way to get in this visit. But like, is there any thought in that? So, you know, like I was minding the time, but I, I just want to share two seconds, like literally Bishop Harav, yeah. that I was listening. <laughs> I, I, I was listening, I was listening, you know, um, I was listening to a share before I came in. And the, in this week's Parsha, right, Yosef, Yaakov meets Yosef. And um, they haven't seen each other, right? Like, and we're all too t- attached these days in our minds to what it is like to be disconnected and to come home from being away, right? Like in today's day and age in Israel. And um, Rashi asked the question, like, Yosef's sobbing, but, like, what is Yaakov doing? He's not crying. Like, the, he's not crying. Like, what is, what is happening here, right? Like, what is he doing? And Rashi's answer is that Yaakov is saying, Shema. And, um, like, what do we do with that, right? Like, what is that about? Like, why is he doing that? How do we learn from that, right? If we think about the fact that, like, our upload are supposed to be giving us parent, there's a parenting moment here, what's happening? Rev Gifter talks about the fact that we have to look at our other not as people, right? As more like figureheads and they're not like regular people. And so we can't really, you know, his connection in that moment is to like bring shame Hashem into this moment and that's how he connects. But I kind of think about the fact that like that's a parenting moment also because like sometimes you just don't know. Like I feel like Yaakov probably just had no idea how that story was going to end. And I'm assuming there's a lot of, like, amuna. That's the honest truth. Like, I really think that at the end of the day that I think we got to this overparenting place because we're trying to control. And I, I you know, again, comes from my own values, right? I feel like there's a place of amuna, right? Like, we just have to hope and pray that we're doing the best that we can and that we have the self-confidence in ourselves as people, as parents, and that we are doing our own avoda to be flexible and constantly aware of like are my values where I want them to be is my house running how I want it to be is there some small change I really feel like I'm capable of making maybe it's so small right it's like the constant it's like why I tell parents like the best thing I think parents can do for their children is find 5 10 15 20 minutes on a Sunday morning and just connect with your spouse and just like troubleshoot that week. What's happening this week? What do we need to do? Where do we need to connect? Where do we need to work together? Where are I? Where am I? Where are you? And then at another point during the week to be able to be like, are we on point? Like, what's our values? Have we checked in about 
well, this kid, have we checked in about what's happening here? Are we learning enough Torah? Do we feel like we're doing enough kind things? Do we feel like we're, we're learning enough with this kid? Whether it's reading, are we putting this kid to bed enough? I think that we're reliant on our own self-confidence, that we're good people, that we're thoughtful people, that we're intentional people, and that we're doing an avoda to be those people, right? So that doesn't mean reading every parenting book that's out there. It just doesn't. Like, I think in some ways it also just takes a minute. Like, how did my week go? Where's my head? Where's my self-reflection? Where am I putting my effort? And, and, and then I think it's just like <coughs> Amuna. Like, I really do. I think you see parents who put everything in and, it's, you know, I, I think that's the anxiety of it all. Uh, honestly, I think it's the anxiety of it all. That, that's my personal, you know, really optimistic. Up. But I think most kids do okay. That's the other thing. Like, I really do. And I think we can trust that. And I think they're finding their way and they're going to have bumps in the road. And I think that's also part of our reminder to ourselves. Like, the moment we're seeing of them right now, it's not, it's not forever. Like, they're working through it also. And I think just, just one last point is that, I guess similar to the Yaakov and Yosef, like, we're parents forever, right? So, like, we have a long journey. Like, the saddest thing is when a parent said to me um, that, like, she thought, like, she, like, she wouldn't be able, like, that, like, whatever relationship she had with her toddler, that was going to be it for the rest of her life. And I was like, oh, my God, you haven't, no, no, that's not right. <laughs> you have so many more years. Like, A, you can't give up on yourself, and B, you can't give up on your parent, on your children, and C, you can't actually, like, let, let your parenting. It's going to shift. It's going to change. It's going to look different. But I, I think, like, we're in it for the long haul. So, you know, today wasn't a great day, but, you know, we're still at it tomorrow. Nobody fired us. Good news, because it's not democratic. <laughs> I was going to go to a different extreme. Yeah. I, I don't know if anyone else has heard this or if it's statistic. Maybe I saw it in the corporate world. I heard more people tell me that their best friend is their mom. Is their mom. Is their mom. So thinking of, thinking of friendship, I don't think you have any thoughts about that. Like, is it, it's almost have that, what's that balance of, I always tap down that very weird. Okay, can I ask a question? Is that, is that, is that current? I wonder if it's current. I, want, I, I don't know. So I, I don't know if it was something I just heard in the in the workspace or if it was so interesting. You know. So here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. I already stepped one time into that for like at some Shabbos meal, and I over it. was like the person's like, "Why? Why is it not good for my children to live in every little radius of my like square block?" And I was like, "I don't know. You totally should do you." <laughs> like I don't know you, and I don't, I don't think you want to know me. Um, <laughs> Um, I feel like, here's what I would say, giving it the benefit of the doubt, what I would say is, I think sometimes people aren't articulate with their words. So I wonder if they really mean a best friend or somebody who knows them the best, that they can rely on the most, that they feel most connected to, who's known them for the longevity of their life. That would be best case scenario. I think, I think the flip is that I think as parents and particularly moms and daughters, we are so tortured by our relationships with our daughters like, just by nature, all of us, right? I'm, like, I'm telling you, transparently, I found out I was having a girl, I cried. I'm like, oh, no. I was like, I was only supposed to have boys. <laughs> and then I had another daughter. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> um, it's hard, right? They were really tortured. We're really tortured, really tortured. And I think that in that space, we sometimes forget that it's okay to actually set boundaries and set lines and, set, and, set, and, and, and have an independent identity. Sometimes we're working too hard to be our kids' friends that we're actually not being their moms. And again, it will always come back to bite us, to be perfectly honest, because they don't want us to be our friends. They don't need us to be our friends. They need us to be moms. They need us to set the boundary 
So I don't think that's the goal. Um, but I think that there's been like a lot of narrative around it. My mom is my best friend. I also think like, well, why is that? What are the other social situations happening that you're gravitating towards that? So if it's actually like, okay for my mom to be my best friend, but I don't have any other friends, that's also kind of a little bit of, in my mind, that would feel like a really big flag. I want my mom to be a person that I love, that I look up to, that I feel connected to. But I think friendship is like a not, that's not, it's, in my head, it's not a goal. Like I want them to want to spend time together, feel connected. But friendship is not, you know, we're not friends with it. Our spouses are friends, right? We're friends with, but parents are not our friends. They're our parents. And, like, I think it's good to be in that sphere, right? I think that, like, I, I, you know, I think, to, I think that it helps also set boundaries. It also helps them look up to us. It also helps us to say no. I don't know. You know, I'm repeating myself, but you get the gist. I'm trying to be nice oh, about I it. Had yeah, you already had an answer. You were just checking. Yeah. I think it's super. I, I think it's fascinating. The, hey, my mom, I go to concerts with. My mom, I go to sports games with. So my mom, we wear the same exact clothes. The weekend was with my mom. We went to my college reunion with my mom. Um, and it's not just one person. I'm telling you, this is like out there. So right. I was asking if I have to do well, I think, you know what, I think it's actually... Like if you're a mom in the room, like, do you... Yeah. If you're feeling that you're getting to that area, like, is that a red flag to you? That's what I was getting I do, I do think it is a red flag. I think that there are, like, really challenges today, because I actually think, and I don't know where this, like, went. I actually think that, like, moms of yesteryear looked really different than moms today. Moms today look cooler, for lack of a better word. Like, they look a little bit more... I look, think back to, like, people that I envisioned in my mom's. Like, they just look different right they didn't wear the same clothes like I wouldn't find I wouldn't wander into my mother's closet to like take a, an item of clothing but today that's true right like you go to and it's actually it's like such a complicated it's actually I asked my own supervisor one time I was like uh, we have to pause this I have a, a situation happening in my house like I just moved clothes out can I give it to her what does that mean She's like, if it's too short, you could give it to her. I'm like, okay, that seems like a good, like, uh, this is like, that's like a good value thing-ish. Um, but it, it's really complicated, right? Like, because then you've shown you've grown and it's going to fit her and it'll be longer on her, but it's not about it being more cool. Maybe something's less trendy. But I don't, but the reality is, is that we all do wear the same clothes and that's not going to change, right? Like, so then I wonder how do we set other boundaries and other areas that do draw a little bit of a line, whether it's how we talk to our kids, how they talk to us, whether it's how they think about us. Um, yeah, and I think like all of those things, I, yeah, not, not, not loving it. This is a personal thing, I don't love it. And I think it's complicated because I think we do look more similar today than we did years and years ago. So I think it's also like a good mindful piece. Like my kids were just talking about it. Like, why does that teacher dress like us? I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> but you know, there is something to think about. I don't know. It's interesting that she noticed it. That's actually what I, po- what I actually pocketed from the conversation was so fascinating. They described it to a teacher. She's wearing the same slippers as us. She's wearing the same this as us. I wonder if she's going to come in with this sweater. Like, and then they're, <laughs> like, they're having it with each other. And I'm like, oh, but someone's like, that's creepy, you know? Like, so it is interesting. That's how kids are thinking. It's an awareness piece. I don't know what to do with it. It's kind of reality. Um, anyways, any last thoughts, comments? Okay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry I went so over time. I hope this was helpful. I hope there were small things that people could pick out that were meaningful to them. Um, I'm here for a minute. I'm not running out. So if anybody...
I didn't even get to half of it. Oh, see, I forgot this one. Just going back to yeah. that, I work at two high schools, and I have, and I have two teenagers. It's so hard. It's so hard.